Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Alan Milburn and this is an absolute corker, all because of the way Alan is, which is disarmingly honest, totally frank, totally open about anything I asked him about, whether that's his upbringing, his family situation as a child, or big recollections about big figures in the Blair cabinet. I will issue no spoilers at this stage, but you can probably infer where this is going to go. And it's just a brilliant conversation for loads of different things. So the great anecdotes about his time at the heart of government, really good insights about new Labour and the shortcomings of new Labour and the things that he noticed at the time that perhaps weren't functioning properly, as well as Great stuff about public sector reform, particularly foundation hospitals, why he agreed with them, why they were desirable, the nature of policymaking and change, the realities of being a Labour health secretary, dealing with the trade unions, so many different things that all interweave. But the one thing that links them all is that Alan talks about them so well. And it's just so open and honest. It's an absolute treat. So you're going to love this. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com. Now, I never like to trail who I've got coming up because sometimes I have to reschedule interviews or guests have to reschedule them. So I never want to say, oh, the next episode is this, if then (laughs) that person can't do it on that particular day or whatever. So I have some amazing guests lined up, which I'm very excited about. But email me, politicalpartypodcast.gmail.com with any suggestions, any feedback. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a specific guest. It could just be a type of guest. And Mark Knight gets in touch and makes a very good point. He says, I'd love to hear you talk to some historians to give historical context to current events. Mark, that is a great suggestion. And I'm already talking to a particular historian uh, about coming on the show. So it's things like that. Sometimes... (laughs) just help because I go, oh, I should get round to that or I should approach that sort of person. And I'm always wary. You know, I try and alternate different eras, different parties, try and get all different types of guests on. But uh, sometimes I might have blind spots. So by all means, get in touch and, and suggest guests of any shape, size or stature um, because it can just help me think, oh, that's an area that I've missed. And historians, Mark, is a great idea. Obviously, on the last show, we had a recollection uh, from someone who'd, um, whose child had seen Carwin Jones on holiday in Iceland. If you have seen a previous guest on this show, or indeed any major politician whilst on holiday, let us know where. Politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. And just let us know where you listen. That's, uh, that's always a lovely thing to do. And please, of course, leave an iTunes review because it helps get the show up the charts, helps other people listen to brilliant interviews like the one you're about to hopefully love as much as I enjoyed recording it with Alan Milburn. I began by pointing out to Alan that social mobility is something that's really become part of who he is. He chaired the Social Mobility Commission and he lived social mobility himself. 
He came from a single parent background on a council estate and got himself into the cabinet. I hope he didn't mind me saying this. and You're about to find out whether he did. But I was always amazed that he'd come from that sort of background because I always thought he just seemed so comfortable being powerful. I mean that in a nice way. He just always seemed so relaxed. He didn't seem like someone who had imposter syndrome. And part of me always thought, well, he must have been privately educated somewhere. You know, there must be something else he's not telling us about his background because he seems just so at home uh, in the cabinet. So I began by making that observation and, and asking him if he saw it as a compliment. Well, therein lies the problem, Matt, doesn't it? Because that is generally the, the reality. If you're in what John Major once famously described as the upper echelons of British society, and I guess if you're in the cabinet, that counts really, um, then almost by definition, and John put it very well, he said that you know, those upper echelons are dominated by a small elite who tend co to come from fee-paying schools. And obviously that was a mile away from actually where I'm speaking to you from. I'm in Northumberland at the moment and where I grew up is about 20 miles that way. Um, and uh, in a little old um, former mining town called Tau Law in County Durham, uh, where I grew up, you know, a single uh, parent, um, didn't know my dad, my mum brought me up, grew up on a council estate, moved to the west end of Newcastle when I was sort of 11 to, you know, what most people would regard as not a fantastic area. And uh, yeah, I got lucky and I count myself as incredibly lucky that I grew up on a council estate and then ended, ended up in the cabinet. Life shouldn't really have to rely on luck though, should it? it should no, it shouldn't. It shouldn't, but I guess as well as obviously your ability, and I think you still have this, a composure and a calmness. You, you never, you don't look like someone who ever suffered from imposter syndrome. I'm not sure if you ever did. No, that's completely untrue. In fact, you know, every time I walked up to see the prime minister in Downing Street, there was always a little thing on my shoulder, basically asking me this question, which is, what are you doing here? And, and if you come from that sort of background, if you talk to people who come from sort of a working class background and have, in inverted commas, made it, that is often something that is gnawing away at you because you do have a sense of not having entitlement, so to speak, you know, whereas if you come from a very privileged background and you've grown up with a sense of expectations that that's just going to be how it is and you're going to be successful and you're going to be, be progress, it feels natural. Um, and for somebody like me, oddly enough, I mean, that's an interesting sort of observation. So, you know, the duck might have looked calm above the water, but believe me, I was paddling furiously below it. <laughs> so. Well, there was a lot of drama during your time in government, uh, whose time in government doesn't involve some periods of drama, I guess. But I just thought you always, part of your strengths, you know, one of the reasons I think you were so popular was that in any crisis, whenever you're on telly, whenever you're on the radio, you just always appeared so calm. And I think composure is something that very few politicians possess. Peter Mandelson had it, and of course he was an MP in a similar part of the world of you, as did Tony Blair. Was there something about the northeast of England that was a, that was a, an education for some of you guys? There was a period in time when there was a bit of a northeast mafia, wasn't there? Because, <laughs> you know, there were others. There was Steve Byers, who's still a very good pal of mine. Um, you know, uh, so, so Steve and I still see a lot of each other uh, nowadays as, as, as friends. We were friends before we went into politics, actually, and uh, remained friends all the way through and since then. So there was a group of people, and I think that was more coincidence than anything else, to be perfectly honest. I obviously knew Tony because, 
you know, he was in the neighbouring constituency domain of Sedgefield, which sort of went around Darlington, which was my, my constituency. And then Peter was just slightly further east in, in Hartlepool. So we all knew each other very well. And we'd often sort of bump into each other prior to being in government, you know, regional events and stuff that was going on in the northeast and so on and so forth. Because it was a it was a particularly challenging time for the for the northeast, particularly in the late eighties and, and early nineties, where it was pretty tough. So I think it was more coincidence than anything else. But um, it was you know it was a great time. I mean it was uh, it was an incredible time to be in British politics. Somebody asked me the other day actually what was it like? What was nineteen ninety seven like when Labour won? And I said. It was one of those moments in time where everything seemed possible. You know? Now, the truth is, it's a bit like the Mario Cuomo quote, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, that, that politicians, we campaign in poetry and we govern in prose. So it tends to be, in the end, a bit more prosaic than that and a bit tougher. And of course, everybody gets tarnished. And, you know, you go into it with a certain image and then you leave it with a different one and so on and so forth. But it was, a, it was an amazing time. And I do... I mean, luck is a sort of recurring word in my life. I feel very lucky about where I was able to be at that particular moment in time, because it was a moment in time. You know, these thumping majorities that New Labour won, three-figure majorities, which have never, ever happened before under this very charismatic, young, new, energetic, modern Labour leader in the guise of Tony Blair, which is probably not what people think of him today, but it was then. Well, some people still do, I think. There, there are some of us still about. <laughs> it's a funny thing. I remember when I was driving to um, Darlington um, in 97, because we weren't then living in the constituency, um, on election day, and switched on the Today programme or whatever it was, and heard these stories at sort of eight o'clock in the morning about people queuing at polling stations in towns like Darlington. Oh, God, this is just, you know, this has got to be wrong somehow. Um, so anyway, we got into Darlington and it was absolutely true. I mean, it was just, uh, it was an amazing atmosphere. I mean, it was just a phenomenon. It was one of those much overused phrase. It was one of those inflection point moments. I'm a Blairite as well, Alan. So I, I'm. Uh, I, I, I still. <laughs> I still would say, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you include Tony Blair, there's at least three of us. Yeah, if you include him, yeah, he's just about a member of the club, I think. <laughs> and I come from a similar background to yours, and I always felt a kind of strange relationship with class because there's no doubt that where you're born determines where you end up to a far greater degree than it should. Uh, and I kind of have a bit of a chip on my shoulder, but also it doesn't prevent me from having effectively, you know, Tony Blair is a very privileged man as, as an idol. So it's not as if though it blinds you to everything. But I thought one of the really powerful things about New Labour as it evolved was that the two people who really became the most popular and effective advocates of it were both you and Alan Johnson, two Alans who are effectively working class heroes. And, and I think for so long in politics, there'd been this shorthand view that uh, the more working class you were, the more left wing you were. And that didn't correlate at all with my experience growing up again in a single parent family on benefits. Um, so I thought for, there was something really potent about you and Alan Johnson in that you weren't just saying it and delivering it, you were living it yourself. You were both you, you were both adverts for social mobility that you could come from your sort of backgrounds 
and get into the cabinet. And either one of you could have become prime minister had either one of you possessed that extra little bit of ambition. Yeah, well, history's a bit littered with future prime ministers, isn't it? So <laughs> I'm not sure that that's true. It's very generous. I'm not sure it's entirely true. And it's funny, you know, when Alan and I bump into each other, which we occasionally do, we always lament the fact that one or other of us has been confused with the other one. Because <laughs> we have completely different accents. We look different. You know, we speak differently. But we, as you rightly say, we come from a similar background. And I think it's a really interesting observation. But, but I guess my, my view about it is this point about being working class and therefore you'd be sort of more, much more on the left than in the centre. I mean, my politics, I really do think, were shaped by where I grew up, um, my mum, the northeast, and experiences. And so I used to tell this story a lot when I was the health secretary, you know, and being interviewed and people were saying, well, why were you, you know, promoting an idea like choice in the in the NHS to give patients a choice over which hospital they would go to and so on and so forth, because it seemed to be a very right wing idea rather than a sort of traditionally labour idea. And I used to say to people, but if you come from a working class background, the thing that you aspire to is having more choice and the thing that you resent is having less. And I really remember very, very well as a kid, probably I must have been about 10 years old, and we lived on this council estate in, in Tau Law in County Durham. And I remember I must have come back from school or something, and the council had been out to repaint all the front doors of all the council houses on the estate where I lived. And, you know, in the morning when I'd left, the door had been yellow and in the afternoon when I came back it was red and I remember distinctly I was slightly taken aback because it wasn't my place and I didn't feel a political thought about it but I did feel that's a bit odd because that's our house (laughs) belongs to us it's where we live it's home doesn't belong to the council now of course it was a council house and actually of course it did belong to to the council so a lot of my politics was shaped by, I guess, this sort of fundamental idea about aspiration. This is the thing that so frustrates and angers me, actually, when people say, oh, well, you know, these sort of working class parents, they don't really have any aspirations for their, for their kids. And that's the fundamental problem with Britain's lamentable track record on social mobility. And of course, it's completely untrue because the people who have the greatest aspirations to get on are those who are furthest behind. And so when Tony started talking about a lot about this agenda, the aspiration agenda and home ownership and choice and, you know, the idea of betterment and, and so on and so forth, for me, that was resonant with where I came from. And I think, by the way, it was resonant with millions of other people, whether they were from a working class background or a middle class background, because it was their lived experience so to speak, and that's what they wanted in their lives. And so he struck a very powerful vein and in the process, of course, was able to build this gigantic electoral coalition of middle-class voters, working-class voters, northern, southern voters, which were quite unprecedented, but built on a very, very simple idea, which is that what most people wanted for themselves, their families and their communities, was the opportunity to get on. The critical thing that was missing was the opportunity, and that's what politics had to provide. Was your mum political? No, 
not, I mean, she thought it's labour. I mean, she wouldn't dare not, um, sort of thing. So, no, but she does thought labour. But my first political memory is, you know what the divvy is, right? You know, the, 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 if you, if you, back, in, back in the day, um, where I grew up in Tower it's a town of then, I guess, probably a couple of thousand people, but it had three branches of the co-op in this little town. And you used to collect something called the dividend, which was, it was like a, it was a sort of concession, I guess, you know, how much money you spend, you got a little bit of money back, okay? And you used to have to go and collect this um, from, from one of the co-op branches. And I remember going with my granddad um, to, to, to collect the divvy one day, and there must have been a general election on, and I'm guessing it must have been one of the mid-60s elections, you know, with Harold Wilson as, as, as prime minister. And the very lovely lady behind the counter saying to me, which way are you going to vote, Alan? And I, I remember pop, peeping up and saying, Labour. Um, not because I understood what it meant, but because it was sort of in the DNA. It yeah. Blood, it was just in the culture of the thing. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a very political family. I mean, my, 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 my heritage, you know, the wider family, was political in the sense that um, my granddad sort of worked uh, in the mines, uh, worked in the local steelworks, um, and his generation um, had, prior to being coal miners, had been come from a heritage of lead mining in um, places like Alston, which sits on the border between County Durham and, and Cumbria. And they'd been very political. You know, they'd been sort of, um, they'd been primitive Methodist preachers, they'd been union activists, one of them had been member, a member of the Independent Labour Party, which was the very left-wing version back in the late 19th, early 20th century. So there was definitely a heritage, but my family was just getting on with the job of trying to live a life and scrape an existence and all of that sort of stuff. And your dad wasn't at all around at all, and he's never no. got in touch, you've never met? Never, never at all. To this day, I've no idea who he was. Absolutely no idea to this day. I feel nosy for asking, but did your mum no, just not no, want no. you to know? Eh? Did your mum just not want you to know? I think it's a conversation that is probably too difficult to have now, to be perfectly honest with you. So, and it's not something that's particularly eaten away at me. Um, I mean, she was such a big figure in my life. She was a very, I mean, she still is, she's 89 now, but she was a steelily independent woman. I mean, incredibly so. Um, if you think about it at the time, to bring a, an illegitimate child into the world in quite a, might have been Labour, but pretty conservative culture in a small mining village in, in County Durham. She always worked. She worked in the NHS, as it happened. Um, you know, always sort of stood on her own two feet. I remember as a kid, again, at, at school, being taken aside by the head teacher, a woman called Miss McIntyre, who was lovely, and uh, saying to me, you know that your mum's very independent, don't you? And I had no idea what independent meant, but I nodded, sort of in agreement, as kids do to teachers. And, and she said, she's very independent, but you are entitled to free school meals, you know, Alan. And, and so I'd, I went back home and said um, to my mother that evening, oh, we're entitled to free school meals. And she said, yes, well, you might be, but we're paying for them. Um, because it was like part of she didn't want to have 
free skill male. She didn't want to be dependent. She wanted to be independent. Um, and that's quite a, a thing. It's a massive thing. And it doesn't just say something about her as an individual and her character. There is a political implication to that. Yes, I think. Yeah, it's exactly. huge about some people actually, even though they're entitled to help, don't want it. And that is not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It isn't, exactly. oh Mike, I feel like we could talk about that. Your mother's take on free school meals it could form the basis of a fascinating piece of, of academia. There's so much that that one position says about her and about society. No, definitely. And remember, there's a very proud Labour tradition of self-help. So again, my granddad, who was a quite big figure in my life until he died, probably when I think I was about 10. Um, I mean, he'd been very ill for a long time and hadn't worked, you know, for, for very many years. But he was, uh, he was, he did a couple of things that, that, that were sort of, again, you know, at the time you don't realise that they're sort of forming who you are, but they're, they're, they are. And so he, he would go to the local mechanics institute uh, on a morning to read the newspaper, presumably because he couldn't afford to, to, to buy one. But the point about that was that it was a centre for learning and it was a centre for working class learning. Um, and so that's what people did. They sort of tried to better themselves. They took responsibility, which isn't to say that, as you hear now from the right in, in politics, well, that's what we should go back to, because, of course, life's much more complex now than it was then. And of course, you know, you have new phenomena now that you really didn't have then, you know, of which the working poor is probably the most important. You know, when we came to office in 97, for example, the majority of kids who were classified by the government as in poverty were in a home where no one was in work. But wind forward sort of 10 years to the end of the um, new labour years, so to speak, and the majority of people who were in poverty were actually in a job. Now, that was great that they were in a job. That gave them a, a, a ladder up, so, so to speak. But the problem was that they weren't were earning enough to escape poverty. And, and that was a very, very big change. So, so I think this tradition of self-help, communities coming together, working together, being very aspirant, education being a really important part of it, you know, those, those were not political things with a capital P, but in retrospect, probably they were laying the platform or the foundations for some of the things that I would come to believe and take into politics in a, in a later life. Just on your dad, it's given the tabloid culture we have in this country, given the tabloid culture that we had in the 90s and noughties, it is actually almost incredible that one of them didn't say we found your dad and he wants to get in touch. You know, the way, when I think of what Liam and Noel Gallagher went through with their dad when tabloids try and reunite them to create a storm and what so many other people would have been through, it, it's actually incredible that didn't happen, that there wasn't ever any a, a rumble of that. I don't know if that's something that when you're in government, you ever thought, I wonder if the news of the world are going to ring me one day and say they've tracked him down. No, I never really thought. I mean, until you, you raised it now, that's not a thought that I've ever had, in fact. So, so yeah, but... Um... Yeah, so as I say, it's not been, I know it, it can look like a, a slightly odd thing, but it's never really big, been a big thing in my life, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, you know, my mother was uh, such a sort of important and seminal figure. And she did sort of very interesting things with me as a kid. You know, when we moved to Newcastle, 
she'd take me to the theatre, for, for example. You know, so we'd go to the Theatre Royal. And, and, and not to easy things, like a pantomime. I'd be to <laughs> Shakespeare, because the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, used to, this is all pre-pandemic, of course, but used to come on an annual season to, to, to the, to the Theatre Royal, and you'd see all the great actors, the Derek Jacobys and all of these guys. And so I'd be taken there, you know, not really understanding much of it, but it was a sort of, again, it was a grounding in, you can be something else than the person that you were born to be. Um, and that, I guess, gives you a sense, at least, of possibility. You can see where the grounding of your politics came from, even if it's not capital P politics. You're aware of uh, your place in the world and a need to educate yourself out. At what point do you start becoming explicitly political? Um, I think I was sort of polit- political in a, in a teenager sort of way as a as a 15 or 16 year old, when I went to university, which again, I'd never really expected to do to, to you know, because obviously people like me didn't, to, to, to be honest. So I got to university, went to Lancaster, uh, where ironically, I'm now chancellor. So imagine that. So that's a really odd thing. Um, I'm handing out degrees rather than trying to get them. Um, and so, so that's been fantastic. I've loved, loved every moment of that. So, but I wasn't particularly interested in student politics, to be perfectly honest. It just didn't, it didn't do it for me. It was very introspective. I couldn't really see the point. Um, but I guess when I came back to the Northeast in the early 80s, um, that's when I started getting very actively involved in a, in a couple of things. I was very active in the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Um, so, you know, I was a sort of regional, I guess, leader in that. I sort of, you know, cared about it, believed in it passionately and, and so on and so forth. And then secondly, and perhaps more significantly, I got involved in the trade union movement. Um, and, you know, I ended up chairing one of the regional unions, in fact, here in the, in the northeast, and that got me into very active politics, trade union politics, and obviously that period was coinciding with um, a massive period of deindustrialization in the northeast and jobs in mining and steelmaking and shipbuilding disappearing and all of that sort of stuff, and I ended up running in the late 80s um, a campaign to save the Sunderland shipyards because I was sort of a reasonably good campaigner and could sort of go on the telly and string a sentence together and all that sort of stuff. And, and it was a really sort of seminal moment for me, both because I got quite well known in the region because I was always on the telly. It was a big thing for the Northeast, actually quite a big thing for, for, for the country. But secondly, it taught me a very important lesson, which is that you can have the best um, campaign and the best cause in the world, and this was a good cause because the yards were profitable, successful, they had a full order book, but they were going to be closed. As it turned out, we found later, because a deal had been done between the European Commission and the, the, the Thatcher government, and there was a toss-up between closing Harland and Wolf in Belfast or closing NESL in Sunderland, and for political reasons, obviously the shipyards in Northern Ireland couldn't be closed. So Sunderland was, and it taught me that actually, if you were going to make a difference, you needed to be actively involved in politics. And until that point, I'd never ever thought at all about becoming a member of parliament at all. Um, and then I got approached by a couple of the trade union guys who said, listen, you should think about it. And in particular, think about Darlington, which was then a very marginal seat, always had been 
Um, the local MP was a guy called Michael Fallon, who's still around today, Michael, in, in Parliament. He was very, very good. Um, held the seat by a very slender majority, and I got lucky, got selected, and then went on to win the seat in 92. And that's how it happened. I fell into it. It was an accident. It wasn't a plan. So CND, trade unionism, is it fair to say at that point you were a bit more radical than you are now? Yes, I think so. Yeah, definitely. And I run a bookshop, which people... You know, yeah, <laughs> well, I was going to ask about that. Of you. Um, so everybody does. So <laughs> called Days of Hope, um, uh, which apocryphally was known as Hairs of Dope. Um, and uh, and people and think that's... Did you inhale? Did you inhale? Me, me and Bill Clinton, we never did. Um, so... <laughs> so um, and of course, what people don't realise is that it was a particularly puritanical form of leftism, that. And so the idea that you had any time for the distractions of, you know, sex, drugs or rock and roll was really so it was all about the class struggle, mate. And so so that's really what, what it was about. But it was, you know, I was I was a young man. In my in my early twenties, I was sort of learning, finding about things. And of course, you know, most people I think would say they don't think exactly the same thing in their twenties that they think in their fifties or the sixties because you just don't. You learn through life, or you should you should do. Do I believe that the fundamental things that I care about now and the fundamental things that I cared about then were broadly the same? Yes, absolutely, of course. Um, but I've come to know a bit more about how you can best go about achieving them, I suppose. You were, I mean, you, you use the word lucky, but you, you get there with ability as well and talent. And you, you served in the cabinet under Tony Blair uh, as health secretary. You were chief secretary to the treasury as well. But it's, it, the health job is what you're, you're best known for, really. That's your, that's your biggest album, if you were a band. It would be your your NHS on vinyl would be this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you about that. Firstly, actually, about the about the fuel protests, because there was this huge moment in that first term, the fuel strike, and it was the only time that the Tories were ahead in the polls. In fact, it was the first time the Tories had been ahead in the polls since about 1992. And there was a there was a sense that even just for a few days, the Blair government was in a state of genuine panic, was it? Um, no, I don't think it was panic, but backs were to the wall. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And it was a really big thing, as you remember, because the country was grinding to a halt. And one of the, and maybe you were going to come to this, Matt, I don't know, one of the moments that I think swung things is that I was getting a lot of data about the fact that the impact on the NHS was becoming more and more severe. You know, like hospitals weren't getting what they needed in terms of fuel and supplies and so on and so forth. And staff were having difficulties and, and so on. So I made the decision to put the NHS on what we called, I think, a red alert at, at the time to say, look, this is really serious. And now we've got to sort of find um, ways of sort of mitigating what, what was going on. And that, I think, was quite a moment in, 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 at that time because it began to swing. Because the body of opinion in the country, if you remember, there was quite a lot of support for, for the strikers and the blockaders. But I think once people began to realise, oh, crumbs, this is actually pretty serious for the NHS, at that point, opinion began to move. Began to move. 
that's exactly how I remember it. And it, and I can still remember. I mean, I wasn't on the side of the protesters at all, but even as a kid, just watching it or as a young person watching it, it's always interesting when something that's really popular has its first test, as New Labour did. You think, oh, God, we're now in a different position. This is the first time we've seen them really struggle. So it was fascinating, almost the sport of politics and, and watching Labour kind of go one nil down for the first time in a while. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But I do remember the NHS thing was the thing that just anecdotally, even amongst young people, I remember... That was the bit where the tide really turned and people said, actually, this is getting ludicrous. If, if ambulances can't get through the motorway, if you can't get organ donations or blood donations through, this isn't worth the fight. So I wonder how many other people listening to this will remember that as the, as the, as the kind of crucial turning point. But that's certainly how I remember it. And it feels like you do as well. I mean, it must be difficult. And I think about how it relates to the crisis we're currently going through with COVID when you are you know, to your core, a, a political person, making that sort of intervention and putting the NHS on red alert, you have a responsibility as the Secretary of State for Health. But you've also got one eye on the politics. I mean, how do you guard against making decisions like that out of purely <laughs> political calculations? I mean, the, you you wouldn't be telling the truth if you said that the politics isn't a factor in it because it has to be it, it is you know you're, you're there as a, as a politician but but I hope what you're trying to do primarily is what is right by the country and I know that sounds terribly old-fashioned and a bit pompous and so on and so forth but it sort of happens to be true because you're, you're sitting there and you know that the decisions that you take not least you know decisions to go to war for example you, you know in Iraq would be uh, the, the the best example of that. These are absolutely huge decisions, and you don't enter into them lightly. I mean, no, and I don't think this is you know about whether you're Labour or Tory or whatever. I just think whoever is sitting in those places is trying to do the best that they can and trying to make the right decisions for the country. You can have flawed judgment. You can have flawed judgment. What I don't like about a lot of the, the, the media coverage and the social media commentariat is that people start from a position of criticism, not around flawed judgment, but around flawed motive. And, and they're different things. And by and large, certainly my experience, and again, maybe it's old fashioned and, and naive. In my experience, most people who come into politics, not all, but most, are in there to try to do the right thing, I think. Um, at least I hope they are. I think they are. And you've always been a pragmatist. You're prepared to chair the Social Mobility Commission under a Conservative government, under both David Cameron and Theresa May. I mean, 
given that your politics are, are Blairite, it's probably easier to, to see you doing that than perhaps someone like John McDonnell or Diane Abbott or Jeremy Corbyn. But was there any part of you that felt, oh, it feels a bit dirty working for a Tory prime minister? Yeah, but a, a, a bit sort of, yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable, particularly when your colleagues are sort of slating you for it. You know, I mean, who slated you for it? I don't remember that. Well, Prescott did. I mean, it's just, you know, it's classic John. Actually, I used to go incredibly well with John, you know, in government. We'd have the most furious sort of battles. I remember once walking to his office because Tony had said to me, you've got to convince him about these foundation hospitals. And I said, not a chance. He said, no, seriously, you've got to go and try to convince him. And I said, well, how am I going to do that? He said, have a weekly meeting with him. Go and have a weekly meeting. So I remember walking into his office one day and there'd been some sort of story that was briefed uh, against Foundation Hospitals, and it was the front page of one of the newspapers. And I walked in, and he was holding this front page up as I walked in, swearing at me, saying, what the hell is this sort of thing? And uh, uh, and so I sat sat down, and it was like a breakfast meeting, so there was some toast and a banana and a cup of coffee or something. I sat down, and then he basically, he went at me and the sentence lasted about 37 minutes because I timed it. And it was like a stream of total vitriol. And without repetitional deviation. No, without, no, absolutely. Without a full stop or a semicolon in the sentence. And so, so it went on. And at the end of it, I said to him, are you finished? He said, yeah. And I said, well, so let me tell you what the facts are. And then I went through it, blah, 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 blah. And to his absolute credit, he said at the end of this conversation, oh, you're probably right. <laughs> so after all of that, it was... So, so I rather liked John, but, but what I didn't like is when he started having a go at me because I'd taken over as chairman of the Social Mobility Commission and it was like I was a Tory collaborator or something. And in a sense, look, I mean, my politics, I've got friends in all, all parties, you know, I, I really do. And I've got an enormous amount of respect for... You know, people who sit on the conservative side, some, some people I really don't respect, but but some some I do, you know, people like Ken Clark, who sort of, you know, Ken, Ken was a great Secretary of State for Health. He's a pro-European all the way through his political career, even when it was deeply unfashionable and deeply uncomfortable. So he stood for something. And those are the politicians that I like. I like people who stand for things. You know, I like people who sort of have got a belief system. Doesn't mean you've got to agree with them, does it? So, so, so working for the Social Mobility Commission was, for me, it was a means to an end. It was really all about, because it was pretty obvious that, at least from my point of view, that Labour was going to be in the political wilderness for some time. And unfortunately, that's turned out to be true. Um, so this was a means to ensure that these questions of social mobility and social justice were on the agenda. And a lot of the stuff that I was doing was about trying to make sure that they were on the agenda of both politics and the media and the public and trying to bang the drum, if you like, and to do that in a very sort of objective way, analysing data, looking at what was happening in society, what were the societal trends, not making it overtly party political, embracing others in political parties and making sure, in as far as possible, that public policy, i.e. politics, couldn't ignore what was becoming a, a widening chasm in British society and putting the lexicon, if you like, of social mobility on the agenda. I mean, where I got fed up and the reason I resigned in the end is it was perfectly obvious that although Theresa, as a prime minister, 
may have got it, and I think did, actually. If you remember her speech when she first became PM in Downing Street, it was very difficult to disagree with it because she was talking about social justice and the, the left-behind areas and all this sort of stuff. Her problem was not the theory. The problem was the practice because she couldn't do it and, in, in the end, wasn't a very effective prime minister. And I'm afraid I just got fed up and just thought, to be honest, this is just not worth a candle. So that's why I stood down. But were there any achievements in your time there? Obviously, in the end, you, you found your position untenable. But under Cameron and, and under those early days of May, did you feel like you got anywhere? Are, are there any tangible things you achieved while you were there? Yeah, I think so. So I think things like pupil premium, for example, you know, which we argued for very strongly. Um, the focus in universities around how they widen participation to ensure that it's not just kids from one cohort in society who get the opportunity to go to university, but they've got to open their doors to a wider pool of, pool of talent. So I think things like that. And a lot, interestingly, of the so-called achievements were negotiated more in private than they were in public. So one of the things I had to do was to have a decent relationship with people I fundamentally disagreed with, Ian Duncan Smith, Michael Gold. So you had to go and sit down in an office with these guys who were nominally your political enemies and try to persuade them of something that you happen to believe in and try to understand where they were coming from in order to make possible what you wanted to achieve being adopted and hopefully implemented. Now, was that wholly successful? Obviously not. You know, look at where we are. You look at the great divide in the country. Only one in eight kids from a low-income background go on to be a high-income earner as an adult. You know, we've got, hey, Houston, we've got a problem. Um, so, but these are, you're trying, you use the word pragmatism, you're trying pragmatically to win small victories, even when it's the other side who are in office. And who did you find it easier to sit in a meeting with, John Prescott or Ian Duncan Smith? Oh, JP, really. I mean, sort of, I mean, just because he was, he was sort of in the end more lovable, I think, you know, I mean, he's sort of, he's, he's fractious and, and, uh, and, and difficult and all of that sort of thing, but there was something about him. And the great thing about him is total authenticity, you know, which I think is a prize in politics, a prize in life, you know, be who you are, not who you think others think you should be is not a bad piece of advice for any young person in particular. You all went through this incredible experience together, those of you that served at high levels in government. And I know football is often my reference point on this show, but occasionally you see retrospectives like the class of 92 and they get David Beckham and Paul Scholes and Giggsy back together and they all reminisce and they've all gone and done different things. Do you ever do that with New Labour? Are there ever on the anniversaries of 97 or 2001? Are there WhatsApp groups? And if, you know, when we're not, when we're not in a pandemic, do a few of you get together, have a glass of wine and reminisce about... Yes, I'm in government. So I keep in touch with Tony, you know, so so he and I were, you know, we're on a on a Zoom or a Teams call or whatever it was, you know, 10 days ago. Just I mean, not particularly about the past, more actually interestingly, about the future. You know, what's it going to be like? You know, what's the politics of the future going to be, and so on and so forth, as well as just catching up, how's your family, how's my family, all the usual stuff, because we're friends. Um, but yes, there's groups of us that you, you know that I see and and pre-pandemic you know occasionally we would have dinner together because we were you know we were comrades in government on the same side fighting a lot of the same battles 
but we also became, you know, friends and, and got to know each other very well. And the uh, and one of the interesting observations I'd have about politics is that after you've left, and this is certainly my experience, you get to know your colleagues much better as individuals once you've left the arena rather than when you're in it. Because when you're in it, this is the thing about politics, when people are looking at it from the outside, it looks like this gladiatorial contest between two enormous armies who are facing off against each other. Well, it often is a gladiatorial contest, but it's often much more atomized than that and very sharp elbowed and everybody's doing their own thing. And sometimes there isn't as much collective endeavor as there, as there should be. And therefore you're probably not spending as much time with your work colleagues as people as distinct from colleagues. But of course, once you leave, the conversation's a different conversation, isn't it? Just by definition. Yeah, so, so who, who are the colleagues that you've got to know better since? Um, well, obviously I know Steve very well. I mean, Steve Byers, you know, he, he and I go back God, 30 years, you know, people like John Hutton. John was best man at my wedding. He, I was best man at his wedding. So we known each other all the way through, you know, but people like John Reed, Charles Clark, Jeff Hoon, Alistair Darling, Helen Little, tragically before she died, Tessa Jow, you know, these were all people that I knew and have continued to know and, you know, in, in, in a post-politics world. So quite a lot. And I know, you know, quite a lot of people who came into politics after me and who, you know, sometimes reach out and want to have a conversation and so on and so forth. And I'm very, very always happy to do that. Talk about the gladiatorial element of politics, sometimes two armies, sometimes those two armies are in the same party. And uh, during your time in government, the Blairites and the Brownites were having a, a kind of civil war. But again, I'm sure your analogy stretches that a lot of that was atomized and a lot of that was people pursuing their own agendas, not necessarily that of their, their principles. I mean, there was a, a lot on the record about you and Gordon and NHS reform and your perception that he was perhaps intruding into your policy area and had you reciprocated and started making speeches on the economy that that wouldn't have been tolerated. How tumultuous was it behind the scenes? It was bad. It was bad and it was self-indulgent. It was really bad. And in retrospect, if anything, I probably feel more angry about it today than I did then. Okay, because I look back and think just how much time and how much energy was consumed on these internal battles when, when you get punished for that in the end, because the public look at it and they think you guys are more focused on yourselves than you are on us. And when that happens, you really do have a problem politically. So mm -hmm. I think it was bad. And I think it was like a drag anchor on a lot of the things that we did. You know, I, I'm very proud of what New Labour did in office. I know people think it's a mixed record, but I actually think that we left the country with less poverty, more prosperity and improved public services. Um, and the country was in a far, far better place. Um, however, I've got no doubt that we could have done a lot more had it not been for, as I say, what was a very self-indulgent sort of battle. And in the end, you know, I'm afraid um, you can only have one leader at a time. It's not a job share. It just doesn't work like that. And it's perfectly okay to be aspirant to be prime minister. What you can't spend your time doing is trying to drag down the prime minister in order to raise yourself up. And I'm afraid the surfeit of ambition in the end was mm. the root cause of all of this, 
And that was, you know, it, that falls to Gordon's, um, that falls to Gordon. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the proof of the pudding is, is in the eating. Um, it's all right saying what you're against in politics, but you've got to know what you're for. And, and that's not easy sometimes, particularly when you're in office and you've got all this stuff coming at you and, you know, the swirl of events is coming so fast, as you're seeing now with, with, the, with the pandemic. But the starting point has to be about what is it that you want to do with the country? And I think it would be a reasonable judgment to say that Blair got increasingly clear what he wanted to do with the country. And I think, unfortunately, for Gordon Brown, that judgment is probably a much more equivocal one. And at the time, would you, expl- would you express yourself in, in clear and direct terms around the cabinet table and, and one-to-one, or did you have to sometimes shroud these judgments in political language? No, I think, I mean, you know, very directory. And, you know, it was perfectly possible to have a screaming match. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, and, and these things happen. Uh, they do. And the cabinet is a funny old meeting, to be perfectly honest, because partially because there are so many people in it. You can see now the poor old cabinet table itself is dwarfed by the number of chairs uh, because you got all these people who are either in the cabinet or hangers on to the cabinet who sort of nearly in the cabinet, but not quite. Um, so you get 30 people in a room, it's pretty difficult to have, you know, a meaningful conversation. And there's just a lot of stuff that you transact that's repetitive and not really in-depth discussions. But yes, there were very in-depth discussions and very in-depth bilateral meetings that certainly I would have with a, with a Gordon Brown or with a John Prescott, where there were very severe disagreements about the way forward. Not I think in terms of the end that was being desired and more about the means that were being pursued. Um, But that's what politics is. Politics in the end is, it starts with an idea. What is it that you believe in? And politics is about how you translate that into a practice that is hopefully going to change things for the better. And of course, people are going to have different points of view about it. Um, I think we did ourselves a disservice in the end. And what's your recollection of the cabinet meetings of that era when you look back do you think oh on the whole they were pretty harmonious but there was the occasional flare-up or do you remember it like it was just non-stop bickering um no not bickering i mean i think no i think i think there was a lot of harmony a lot of collegiality um and, and tony of course was a very collegiate engaging open leader in the sense that you know he would listen he would want to engage and all of those things. But of course, you know, when there was a big issue and foundation hospitals became a big issue or education reform became a big issue or welfare reform became a big issue, then there is undoubtedly, there is an underlying tension in the conversation. Well, of course there's going to be, isn't it? Just translate that into your own life, into a family situation. You sat around the table, you know, everybody's part of the same family, but uh, hey, guess what? We all know that there is some sort of there's some there's some family history and there's some points of view that are not necessarily harmonious ones. It's not different. It's the same. Thinking about it as a family with Tony and Gordon as mum and dad, was that kind of how it played out? Would would people play one off against the other? Would the two not row in front of each other? Because so many of the problems it seems flow from whatever that deal was, but certainly the agreement that Gordon would have 
for a chancellor, unprecedented reach over other departments, which when you see it through the lens of Blair and Brown, you go, that's a great idea. These are two really talented, borderline equals, and one, the front man gets to be the front man, but the other guy, who's this fantastic brain, gets to give the benefit of that brain to all these other departments. It's only when then you bring in Alan Milburn, Peter Mandelson, the other cabinet ministers have to deal with that. You go, well, actually, that makes it really difficult for whoever's secretary of state. Yeah, but these things are, I mean, sure, it, it is complex. And of course, um, the remit that I think Tony foolishly gave to Gordon in terms of the breadth of the remit was always going to be destabilizing. And from my point of view, the only way to deal with that was basically to say, you know what, I'm going to own this turf and get on with it because in the end I've got responsibility and of course you've got a legitimate point of view, I'm perfectly prepared to listen to it, but in the end we've got to do what we think is right here. So, so cabinets, governments, just like any organisations, are complex in terms of, of their relationships. Uh, but what you can't allow is the internal politics to derail the external mission. Um, and at times we were in danger of doing that. And would you find, would you occasionally go to Tony Blair and say, Tony, look, Gordon's being really difficult. You say, well, uh, Alan, you know, you got to, you got to talk to Gordon about it. You know? And then you go to Gordon and say, no, 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 you need to talk to Tony. Like, were you sort of being played between the three of you in a way? A bit. I mean, I think I always felt with Tony that he was sort of, he had my back, so to speak. And on the big questions of change and reform, you know, whether that was introducing choice for patients, setting up foundation hospitals, relentlessly focusing on getting waiting times for treatment down, Tony and I were sort of, we were on very much the same side and he, he would back me. But of course, as a prime minister, he also had to deal with his chancellor. So, you know, there was politics in, 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 those, in those relationships. Um, I mean, in the end, as I say, I think it did act as a drag anchor. It slowed us down. It consumed us a lot of, en a lot of energy. But just taking a step back, I mean, where we got to from where we were, nonetheless, I think was a significant amount of progress. And so you took the big thing, which was around at the time, was waiting times. And hey, guess what? We're back to that now, aren't we? Because we've now post-COVID, hopefully post, we are, we've got one and a half million people waiting more than six months for a hospital operation. And my advice to Matt Hancock or to Boris Johnson is, don't underestimate how long it will take to get that brought back down again, because it took us a long time. When I first became Secretary of State for Health, people were waiting two or three years for quite serious operations, like a heart operation. A friend of mine died waiting for a heart operation. A young guy, he was 39 years old, he was a photographer um, on my local newspaper in, in Darlington, uh, the Northern Echo, a guy called Ian Weir with a young family. And I didn't realise but Ian had a um, family history of, of heart disease, first of all. And then he didn't tell me he'd been waiting for ages and ages to get a hospital operation and um, during my time and then tragically died. Um, and uh, it was terrible. Um, I was actually chief secretary at the time that that happened. But very shortly afterwards, I became secretary of state for health. And the very, very first thing I did, really informed by what had happened to Ian, is I organised a session with some of the leading cardiothoracic surgeons in the country and the other heart experts and said, right, what are we gonna do about this? And they said, well, we need some money. And I said, how much? They said 50 million quid. I said, you've got it. Um, let's form a plan. Let's make sure that we can get the waiting times down. And we set an ambition to do that. 
that no one would wait more than three months for a, a, a heart operation and then subsequently for any operation and um and sort of it took us about 10 years but that happened those new labor years the 97 to 2010 government is always seen now as the yardstick for investment in the nhs whenever you see a chart on the telly whenever any budget is produced the step change in funding is incredible and it's something that, that everyone every member of that government should be really proud of on top of that it was also about reform and you mentioned foundation hospitals there let's just remember what foundation hospitals were this was about allowing high performing hospitals to effectively opt out of pay structures to be slightly more independent to be able to borrow money and things what was the principle behind foundation hospitals basically very very simple so i had a conversation with um the chief executives of the leading hospitals in the country and i and i remember the event very well it was at a, a hotel sort of meeting room in london and i said to them what do you want from me and i thought the answer was going to be more money and they said more freedom and I said, okay, fine. So we then went away and thought what that would mean. Now, what it didn't mean, by the way, is that they could opt out of pay structures. They couldn't. There was a sort of, that, that was a sort of national thing, et cetera, et cetera. But I did want to give them more autonomy because why? Because I learned a very simple lesson, Matt, as the health secretary, that however good or bad I was didn't really matter. It was impossible for a system employing almost a million and a half people to be run from an office in Whitehall. And the people who really were doing the running or had to do the running were the people who were at the front end, you know, whether in the hospitals or in the GP surgeries, because guess what? They knew what they were doing, first of all. And secondly, they knew their local communities. But the way the NHS was organised is it all went up to the top. So all the decisions were taken at the top. They weren't made in Darlington any more than they were made in Dartford. And that struck me as fundamentally wrong. So the whole idea behind foundation hospitals was to empower the front line so that people could get on and deliver the goods that were appropriate for their communities whilst operating within a national system of national pay, national standards, national systems of inspection. And the Labour Party and particularly the trade union movement found that really difficult because they argued, and Gordon, I guess, was part of this, that this would lead to disaggregation, disintegration, anarchy, or even privatization. Well, come on, guys, have a look. You know, it's 2003, I think, the foundation hospital legislation passed. We've got, you know, dozens and dozens of foundation hospitals still in existence. They're all still part of the National Health Service. They had been privatized. So, you know, honestly, with these things, my the lesson I took from all of this was, if you're doing change, which is what I'm primarily interested, how do you do change? How do you make society better? How do you make public services better? You've got to walk through the fire of change. And that's just very uncomfortable. It's a hot place. But once you walk through it, you sort of look back and think, what the hell was all that about? Why was that? Why is that such a big deal? Was it a really big deal? Guys, I mean, calm down, honestly. The trade union, I mean, every Labour Party conference was a bloodbath for me, at least, mainly my blood, unfortunately, where, you know, the trade unions would be going hammer and tongs, I was going to destroy the system, I was going to privatise it, it was going to be, oh, you know, the end of the world as we know it. And of course, it was none of these things. But were some of those concerns legitimate or coming from a good place? They were coming from a place of tradition. And that's fine. Okay. But the fundamental ethos about new labor was this, which is that if you're going in a funny sort of way 
if you're going to keep the things that you most cherish, you've got to change them. And that's a very difficult, it's almost a counterintuitive thought, isn't it? If we just kept running the NHS as it always had been from 1948, it would never be fit for purpose for today's world. And if people feel it's not fit for purpose in a taxpayer system, they start thinking, well, why do I want to pay my taxes for that thing? Because it doesn't seem to be responsive. It doesn't listen to me. It doesn't give me choices, which I have in every other aspect of my life. In every other aspect of my life, I get choice, but not when I get to the hospital or the GP surgery. I take what I'm given. And that's just not sustainable. And so, so sure, I understood why people were arguing against, but it struck me as wrong and it struck me as self-defeating that in the end, what would happen is the very people who most wanted to protect the NHS would end up massively undermining it. And so change for, for us, for New Labour and for me today in my life, Change is the currency I deal in. That's what I'm interested in. And that's what, that's what being a progressive is. You know, we're not conservatives. Conservatives are about conserving. That's the, the clues in the title, guys. Okay? Labour is about changing. If it isn't about changing, it ain't going to win. And it ain't going to govern. And it ain't going to make life better. One of your concerns from inside government at the time, apparently, was that new Labour for all the noble things that you outlined there and that, that really challenging counterintuitive principle of constant renewal, whether it's of services or of your own political uh, you know, intellect, if you like, was also that Labour was starting to sound, New Labour was starting to sound too managerial and not political enough. And that, when you think of the legacies of where Labour's ended up now, where politics is now, you could see that problem was, was kind of setting in, was that you're simultaneously wanted to be the really pragmatic people but you don't want to sound like you're only pragmatic and that you're not ideological. How do you get that balance right? I think it's a it's it's a hundred percent right. Politics isn't plumbing. <laughs> you know, it's not about sort of fixing the entrails. People are not. It's a wonderful column that was written in the Times Times once by a very good journalist Rachel Sylvester, who was talking about Andrew Lansley's one of my successors. Um, health reforms as, as Secretary of State for Health. And she described the reforms as all, um, uh, all abattoir and no beef burger. What did she mean by that? She, she meant that he kept talking about the how of change. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to change the plumbing, I'm going to move from primary care trusts to CCGs, etc. Whereas if you're a consumer or a patient or a member of the public, what you're interested in in is the outcome. You want to have the burger. You don't particularly want to look at the entrails. And sometimes I think one of the mistakes that we, including me, made is that we got a bit too focused on the entrails. Um, we got a bit too focused on the how and not the, the why uh, or the what. Uh, and and po progressive politics in particular, it can't win unless it engenders hope and inspires people about the sort of world that you want to have. And in the end, that is much more about what you're trying to achieve rather than how you're trying to achieve it. Um, when you're in government, you're being dragged in to the how because that's what you're there to do. That's what you turn up to work for, right? That's what you're being paid for. And it's very easy to forget the other stuff, which is really about why you came into it in the first place. So you find yourself in government. You're, you're driving through these pioneering healthcare reforms. You're thinking about politics at such a strategic level. And yet you never stand. 
to be leader of the Labour Party or, or Prime Minister. What stopped you doing that? I mean, in the end, because I didn't want it. <laughs> Why not? What, what, what was it that didn't attract um, you or that put you off? I mean, a, a few things. I guess, you know, first of all, I had a very young family. There were two of us, really, in the Cabinet, me and Alistair Darling, I think, who had the youngest families. And we were both, ironically, two of the MPs who were furthest away from Westminster in terms mm. of where we lived. So we were doing this massive commute every week. And so there was a big consideration for me about Ruth and the, and the kids. That was a really sort of big factor in, in, in my life. So that was the first thing. The second thing was that I'd seen a bit what had happened to Tony in terms of the pressure, the aging, the effect on him personally. And I wasn't sure that I was entirely up for that. And thirdly, I honestly thought that it was unlikely that I would win it, even if I did stand, you know, because I think for a whole variety of reasons, it was looked more obvious that Gone would get it than anyone than anyone else. So I sort of pragmatically took the view that, you know, there it is. And it's funny because I hadn't really realised the extent to which people did want me to stand. And this is one of the bizarre things about, about politics. It's only in retrospect that I've had so many former colleagues come to me and say to me, oh, God, we would have really supported you if you'd stood. Now, maybe they're just sort of slightly telling fibs, I don't know. But, but it's a funny thing. I didn't get a sense of that at the time at all. And it's, the other odd thing about it is, you know, what people are reading about you and writing about you is very different from this sort of person that you are because they had me as a sort of, I was super ambitious and I had a plan. I never had a plan. And I honestly wasn't that ambitious. I was just living in the moment, really enjoying it. You know, it was an amazing time. I feel very privileged to have done it. But I didn't have, I wasn't like Michael Heseltine, who very famously at the age of whatever it was, 17 or 18, on the, literally on the back of an envelope, charted where he was going to be in his political career. You know, by the age of 30, he was going to be in the cabinet. And by the age of 40, he was going to be prime minister. I just don't think like that. I never have. Um, so, so that was the reason. And in the end, the reason I left politics in, 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 in 2010 was that, I mean, I guess for two reasons. First of all, I'd never seen it. I'd never seen myself as a lifer. I didn't necessarily want to be in there for life. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to try something else and particularly in business, which is what I do a, a lot of today. Um, and secondly, unfortunately, it seemed to me when I was gazing into my own crystal ball that it was obvious that Labour was going to lose and was probably going to be out for some time. And I didn't honestly want to be spending my 50s on the Labour backbenchers in opposition. I'd done five years of that when I first was elected and John Major was Prime Minister. So partially for selfish reasons, I sort of, I walked out. I wonder if class subconsciously played any part in limiting your ambitions in some way you know you say when you walked up Downing Street that occasionally that voice on your shoulder saying what are you doing there did the highest office in the land feel like a step too far for someone from your background yeah no I think it's I think it's a it's a very reasonable question and insight and yes possibly is the answer to that that maybe maybe somewhere sort of deep within it really did feel that it wasn't for the likes of me I don't think that was the primary driver to be perfectly honest, I think there were sort of other motivations for, for, for me not wanting to do it uh, than that. And I don't, I mean, the important thing is for me is, 
can I answer the question, do I regret it in, in a way that is, um, in a way that is honest? And, and I don't regret it. You, you know, I don't. I mean, look, you can hear as we're talking, politics is always going to be a big part of my life. It always will be because it's somewhere in my soul. But my life is a million times better out of politics than in. I don't mean money. You know, money's one thing, but it's just I've got the time to do what I want to do, to think about the things that I want to think about, to engage with the people and the organisations that I have an affinity with or I care about. And that's very difficult to do in politics, which isn't to sort of say, you know, anybody should be sort of, you know, forming a, a support group for sort of politicians, you know, who've, who've got a horrible deal. It's not that at all, but people have got to make choices in their own individual lives. And those are the choices that I made and I don't regret them. And you're also a person who's not just a politician. You are Alan Milburn, the father, Alan Milburn, the son, Alan Milburn for himself. You know, there are other things you want in your life other than always having to think about yourself through the prism of being a government minister and all the responsibility and the discipline that requires you to have in every element of your life. That must well, be I think now, I think for this generation of politicians, and it's different from this generation from mine, because they're operating within the swirl of social media. And as you know, everything is 24-7 in a way that, frankly, it wasn't when, you know, Blair and myself and others were, were, were around. It was coming, but it wasn't there yet. So they're operating in this total swirl of white noise coming at them all, all the time. And I think it's just much harder and it's all consuming and trying to get some headspace to get out of that, I think is just harder, which is one of the reasons that I think, you know, people sometimes, sometimes uh, uh, struggle. But you're absolutely right. There are many dimensions to people's lives. You, you know, I mean... I'd love to spend a bit more time to be able to support my local football team, even though it is Newcastle United, you know. Difficult times. Talk about long suffering. Um, it's been quite a while since we won anything. Um, so, you know, there's lots of things that I'd like to do in my life. And you can't really do all that if you're in government, because rightly, government is your responsibility and it should be your obsession. That's just the terms of trade. Just on Newcastle United, I was going to ask you, your surname is shared with a Newcastle United legend, Jackie Milburn, who Tony Blair was eventually exonerated about whether he'd claimed to have watched him in the Gallagher and the the, the recording um, uh, vindicators, Tony Blair, as viewers of that episode of Football Focus may remember. But from the North East, a surname like Milburn, is there any family connection at all? Yes, I think there is. I, I, I think distantly. So I think, I mean, there are certain family names up here of which Milburn and Charlton, for example, are, are, are two. And if you go back hundreds of years, hundreds of years, both the Milburns and the Charltons were what is known as Border Reavers. Um, there's a couple of good books on, on Border Reavers, if anybody wants to look them up. Um, and we were basically vagabonds. That's basically what we were. We sort of were thieves. <laughs> Essentially, we sort of robbed people. That's really what we did. I'd love to think that it was more Robin Hood than anything else, um, than Gordon Gecko, but you never know. So, so that's that, 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 that's what we were. And I think there is, and the other is Robson, of course. So, probably somewhere there is some sort of connection. And I think there is some, for example, <clears throat> I think Bobby Robson and I, you know, who's such a wonderful, wonderful man as, a, as well as a wonderful manager. Bobby and I are sort of very distant relations. 
Um, so where where he is from, Eshwinning, and where I'm from, Tallaw, both in County Durham, about five miles apart. So the northeast is a village. Well, it is. It is indeed. I wasn't expecting to find out that you were distantly related to Bobby Robson, but that's amazing. Alan, this has been a real, real treat. Thank you so much for coming on and for being so open and candid. It's been a real pleasure. Right. Really enjoyed it. Well, there you go, Alan Milburn. What a brilliant defence of pragmatic politics. But of course, even the most pragmatic of politicians have their limits. And he couldn't carry on as chair of the Social Mobility Commission. And I think that's a really important lesson because pragmatism doesn't just mean sticking around forever, even if you feel like you can't have any use. It means you're prepared to work with people from other sides, but only if you can actually get things done. And I think that's where he's such a great example of someone who's continued to always try and make his time worthwhile, making change as he sees it to make the world a better place. And that is just such a fascinating lesson and just incredible. Him and Alan Johnson both. And of course, there are other examples. But for that era of, of Labour, those two really stand out as people with really, in terms of not having a privileged upbringing and being able to go really far in politics, those two embody it in the new Labour era, I, I think, better than anyone else. And fascinating that they're both Blairites. But so many great stories. And he was just... I felt, I mean, I, I, you know what? I, I think I did meet him when I was a, a very junior member of staff in the Labour Party. But that felt like sitting down with an old friend. And if I, if I have met him before, I'm sure he won't remember it. I'm not sure I did. It would have only ever been a fleeting thing. But my word, that was an absolute joy. So I shall leave you for now. Uh, don't forget to register by post if you don't think you're going to feel comfortable going into a polling station in May because it's important that you don't lose your voice. I've put the link to that. Uh, to the to the website where you can register by post in the show notes. I will just continue to do that until the deadline has passed. Um, and anyway, it's just good to register to vote by post in general, perhaps, if you don't know if you're going to be around come the general election, you might be out of the country. Although who is making plans to be out of the country at the time of the next general election? Well, we're not even sure when it's going to be. But uh, there we are. I shall, <laughs> I shall leave you on that. Register to vote by post if you don't think you're going to feel comfortable going into a polling station in May. Leave us an iTunes review. You can find it within yourself. I'd be very, very grateful. And I'll see you next time. Ta-ra.